the church and the faults of the past. So I'll start with a snapshot from history. In 2,000 years of the papacy, there have been just a very few abdications. One of these was in the year 1045, Pope Benedict IX, who you see there on the left. His reason for abdicating? Well, he wanted to get married. Now, his abdication was probably a good thing because his pontificate had been fairly appalling. And actually, the, the century and a half before him had been the worst time for the papacy, dominated by the, the local nobility, having their own favourites on the papal throne. And so some quite unworthy men became Pope. And so there was John XII, who you see there on the right, who became Pope as a teenager in the year 955. And Benedict IX, who I mentioned, who became Pope in 1032, aged about 20. He followed John's example of violence and immorality. Maybe no worse than some of the, the secular rulers over the centuries, but not what we expect of a Pope. And finally, as I said, he abdicated in order to marry. And he sold the papacy to his successor, taking a large sum of money from the man who would be Pope after him. So, while it's good to remember the large number of saints in papal history, there have also been times when the forces of evil infiltrated. So, very importantly, evil could never take control of the very essence of the church, the truth of her teachings, the holiness of the mass and the sacraments. As Catholics, we always remember the words of Jesus to St. Peter. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And those words give us the certainty that the Catholic Church, founded by Jesus on Peter as the first Pope, the Catholic Church will be upheld in truth and grace until Jesus returns in glory at the end of time. But those words also warn us that the gates of hell, the spiritual forces of evil, will battle with great fury until the end of time to try to tear down his church. And so it's always good to remember the life of the church isn't a tea party, it's a war. And when the forces of evil do infiltrate and even seem to get the upper hand, that doesn't lead good people to desert the army, it leads them to fight all the harder. The great convert, blessed John Henry Newman, who will be canonised next month. He gave this powerful image. The Catholic Church, he said, inherits the promise made to the disciples that they should take up serpents and if they drank any deadly thing, it should not hurt them. When evil has clung to her and the barbarian people have looked on with curiosity or in malice till she should have swollen or fallen down suddenly, she has shaken the venomous beast into the fire and felt no harm. He's drawing there on the, the incident near the end of the Acts of the Apostles where St. Paul, shipwrecked on Malta, gets bitten by a viper. And to the amazement of the natives, he's unaffected by it. And so maybe Newman was thinking of times in the history of the church, like the 10th and earlier 11th centuries, when evil had clung to her. And so in his image, we can imagine the, the serpent, insane with hatred, spying out the figure of the church 
and then striking and injecting its venom. But then suddenly, the superior power of divine grace shines forth and she casts away the evil. That's something alien to her true nature. Because shortly after Benedict IX, the Pope who abdicated to Mary, comes the great reform of the papacy and the clergy under St. Leo IX and St. Gregory VII. And the church is slowly led towards the glory of the high middle ages. Still not a perfect time, but a great improvement. So those times of corruption in the papacy. And one of the examples of evil in the 2000 year history of the Catholic Church. And all these uh, different things that have occurred over history, various things that non-Catholics might raise in discussion with us, and things that maybe raise questions in our own minds. Because in the Creed, we do profess our faith in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Faith tells us the church is holy without fail. So the question arises, how does this fit in with the various evils scattered across history? I'll refer here to a document published by the International Theological Commission in the year 2000, entitled Memory and Reconciliation, the Church and the Faults of the Past, which is the, the title of my talk this evening. So the International Theological Commission is a, a body of theologians set up by Pope Paul VI in 1969 as an advisory body to the Magisterium. And so in the lead up to the year of Great Jubilee, the year 2000, celebrating 2000 years since the birth of Christ, one of the themes that St John Paul II had for the Jubilee was what he called the purification of memory reflecting on some of the shadows of the past and asking forgiveness. And so the International Theological Commission was asked to explore that theme, which it did in this document. Now, at the opening of its document, the Commission quoted Pope John Paul's words. As the successor of Peter, I ask that in this year of mercy, the Church, strong in the holiness which she received from her Lord, shall kneel before God and implore forgiveness for the past and present sins of her sons and daughters. And so, the distinction between the holiness that the church receives from the Lord and the sins of the church's members, her leaders included. Now, the Commission made an important clarification. We can't divide the, the visible church, what some call the institutional church, from a supposedly invisible spiritual church the Second Vatican Council, among other, other things, taught that one and the same church is both spiritual and visible. And that means we can't simply say, oh, these things were done by the, uh, the bad things were done by the visible institutional church, but our commitment is to the hidden spiritual church. So we can't say that. However, where we can make a distinction is between what comes from Christ meaning her teachings, her sacraments, her visible hierarchical structure, and so forth. And on the other hand, what merely comes from us as human beings. And that brings in human free will. And so we can misuse what God has given us. 
and what comes from Christ is all that we're really ultimately committed to. Because that's where we get the, the divine aspect. So the merely human aspect, well, sometimes that's still compatible with what comes from Christ. For example, different human customs and so forth. But sometimes, of course, the human element is actually in conflict with what comes from Christ. So sin and error within the church. So the divine element and the human element. Pope Francis, speaking to journalists a while back, I think it might have been on an aeroplane, he expressed the same duality. After saying how the church should apologise for various wrongs, he added, when I say the church, I mean Christians. The church is holy, we are sinners, he said. Back in 1968, Pope St Paul VI expressed something similar in the Credo of the People of God, uh, a wonderful document that I, I strongly recommend to your reading. And so he proclaimed, the church is holy, though she has sinners in her bosom, because she herself has no other life but that of grace. It is by living her life that her members are sanctified. It is by removing themselves from her life that they fall into sins and disorders that prevent the radiation of her sanctity. This is why she suffers and does penance for these offences, of which she has the power to free her children through the blood of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the church suffers and does penance for these offences. And the document of the Theological Commission says this. The church is touched by the sinfulness of her children. She is holy in being made so by the Father through the sacrifice of the Son and the gift of the Spirit. She is also, in a certain sense, sinner in really taking upon herself the sin of those whom she has generated in baptism. This is analogous to the way Christ Jesus took on the sin of the world, obviously without him literally becoming a sinner. quote St Thomas Aquinas and St Thomas as we'll see uh, refers back to the, the teaching of St Paul in his letter to the Ephesians that we see at the top of the slide there so St Thomas says to be a glorious church with neither spot nor wrinkle is the ultimate end to which we are brought by the passion of Christ hence this will be the case only in the heavenly homeland not here on the way of pilgrimage where if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and so, a bit of complexity in how we describe the, the holiness of the church, our Holy Mother, who embraces her sinful children. So, what are some of these evils in the church's history that we're talking about? I gave the example at the start of papal corruption, and that's happened a few times. Of course, every pope in history has been a sinner to one degree or another, just like all of us. But a few of them stand out for iniquity. Like John Twelfth and Benedict IX, who I mentioned, or at, at the Renaissance, Alexander VI, the Borgia Pope. But we can get some, some of the broader categories of evils in the church from uh, a mass celebrated by Pope John Paul II on the first Sunday of Lent in the year of Great Jubilee. And so after the homily, there was this series of prayers 
asking for forgiveness, looking back over the church's history. And so different cardinals came forth and prayed for forgiveness for these different categories of sin. So after a general confession of sins, there was the confession of sins committed. It was said in the service of truth, meaning intolerance and persecution, as, as with the Inquisition. Then sins that harmed the unity of the church, when Catholics have contributed to division among Christians. Sins against the people of Israel, and so the different forms of persecution of the Jews in particular. Then it named sins against love, peace, the rights of peoples, respect for cultures and religions. So referring to the different times when, when Catholics, whether popes or monarchs, have instigated unjust wars. Or referring maybe to some of the oppression that took place at the time of, of European colonisation. Next, I mentioned sins against the dignity of women and the unity of the human race. So we know uh, the great contribution that Christian faith has made to the position of, of women. And yet it's taken a long time for that to fully permeate the church's understanding. And then the, the, the unity of the human race, the, the reference there is to, to racial and ethnic discrimination. And finally, it names sins in relation to any violations of human rights. This was all shortly before the, the abuse scandals really exploded into the church's consciousness in, in 2002. And obviously, when we think of this, this whole topic of, of evils in the history of the church, one of the things in our minds is inevitably the abuse crisis. I'm not going to focus on that because, for one thing, with, with all its different aspects, it could easily take up the whole session. And because it's an ongoing issue, it brings in lots of elements beyond the theological. But a lot of the things I say will, will obviously be of application to, to any evils in the history of the church, and so to the abuse crisis in particular. So, faced with various scandals from church history across 2,000 years, how should we respond? Well, first, the Theological Commission tells us we need to have an accurate picture of the real history. So mixed in with, with valid charges are all sorts of legends and generalisations and false accusations. Often, too, perspective is missing. And so there can be a very selective view of history that sidelines all, all the huge benefits that the church has brought. Obviously, from a spiritual viewpoint, so much goodness and truth and holiness, but even in, in secular terms, the way the church has helped advance knowledge and civilization and human dignity. And the selective view also can downplay that the very same sins and evils from church history, like wars or persecutions, they've obviously also been present outside the church and, often enough, even more strongly. In other words, that shows the problem isn't with the faith as such, but with the human race. We should also distinguish between sins committed in full knowledge and guilt. We distinguish that from mistakes made in, in good faith, where the implications of the gospel haven't yet fully permeated people's thinking. Because the Holy Spirit works gradually and gently with the whole human race. And that includes Catholics. So the gospel comes to a person, to a society, 
already influenced in all sorts of ways, positive and negative, by their culture and history. And that has an impact on how completely they receive the gospel. And this includes, of course, not just the, the laity, but the, the hierarchy. They're not magically immune from their culture. And so it's only step by step that the church has fully applied gospel principles to matters like, for example, slavery or religious freedom. No false teachings on such matters have ever been or will ever be proclaimed as dogmas of faith. And yet, on the other hand, the full truth doesn't get understood and proclaimed all at once either. And this is what we call the development of doctrine. The Holy Spirit is leading us deeper and deeper in our understanding of the fullness of truth revealed in Christ. In the document of the International Theological Commission, it speaks about the need to assess the past within the context and understanding of the time. So the different paradigm when church and society were, were totally intertwined. And yet, at the same time, without totally relativising moral principles to the historical situation. And so the document stated, both an apologetics that seeks to justify everything and an unwarranted laying of blame must be avoided. And so it's when we've cleared away all these matters that we're faced with the, the real sinfulness of Catholics. And it's then we can say, again, leaving final judgment of individuals to God, it's then we can say, guilty as charged. As we said, Christ has promised us the truth of the church's teachings and the grace of the sacraments, but these don't guarantee that we will live accordingly. And free will can always reject grace and truth. And so a lot of the leaders in the church have been saintly people, but others have been unworthy, even as one of the 12 apostles was himself a traitor. And Jesus himself actually warned that the kingdom of heaven, in the form that it takes in this present world as the church on earth, it would be like a net containing good fish and bad, or a field where the enemy has sown weeds among the wheat. And so we may well ask, how could the actual fulfilment of his prophecies that we see over the course of history, how could that invalidate his promises? Of course not. Or Jesus speaks about the, the unfaithful steward, which applies very naturally to unfaithful church leaders. So he says in his parable, if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And Jesus said to the disciples about the, the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. In the same way, we always trust church teachings guided by the Holy Spirit, even if transmitted through sinful leaders. And obviously, we don't follow the example of the sinful leaders themselves. An important point to note is that a lot of the, the categories of sins that were included in the request for forgiveness in the liturgy in St. Peter's that I mentioned, they were sins of lay Catholics, 
for example, in the history of colonialism. And sometimes as well, it was the clergy standing up for the rights of the oppressed against some of what the laity were doing. Often when people discuss the, the evils present in church history, they typically just mean sins of the popes, of the hierarchy, of the clerics. But that's actually a very clericalist approach, which we all know is a very bad thing. Because the church isn't identified with the hierarchy, it includes all her baptised members. And obviously the sacrament of holy orders doesn't magically immunise someone from sin any more than baptism or confirmation. And yet people still typically have this feeling that the sins of priests challenge their faith in a way that the sins of the laity don't challenge faith. As though from the promises of Christ we would have expected all the ordained to be saints. Well, quite mistaken, of course. Now, whether this makes the, the theological problem better or worse, I'm not sure, because it means that when we think of sin in the church, we need to include all the sins of the laity as well. And maybe we should be nearly as shocked by the sins of the laity who violate their baptism as the clergy who violate their ordination. Or maybe not especially surprised by either. We all have free will. At this point, that the sacraments aren't magic also applies to the Eucharist. So if someone receives communion while deliberately remaining in a state of grave sin, that actually makes them spiritually worse off, not better, since it's then the grave sin of sacrilege. And so we can easily see that those who are often receiving the sacraments, they wouldn't necessarily become holy. For example, the corrupt popes when they celebrated Mass. And so again, it's not any lack of power in the sacraments. It's the misuse of sacraments by free will. Again, it's really a form of clericalism to have our faith influenced by deficiencies in the hierarchy. If we thought that the truth of church teachings was because this pope or this bishop was so wise or so holy, then the discovery that they actually weren't wise or holy, well, that would logically undermine our faith in the church teachings. Or if we thought that the grace of the sacraments was because of the holiness of the minister, then the discovery that the minister wasn't so very holy would undermine our trust in the grace of that particular sacrament. But actually, no human being, no matter how holy, could produce the grace of the sacraments. And no mere human being is wise enough for us to put faith in their teachings as infallible. And it's almost idolatry to suppose that they were. It's only because God guides church teachings according to Christ's promises that we put our faith in them. It's only because Christ acts in the sacraments that we believe they confer grace. So the wisdom or the holiness of the human instrument that God uses, well, it's an enhancement, but it's not central. Christ is central, not the priest. Another thing to keep in mind is that in these questions of, of evils in the church, people often form their opinions just by emotion. For example, when, when people think about how heretics were burnt at the stake in some periods in the past. Naturally enough, strong emotions can arise against that. 
And that's a good thing. We should have negative emotions when we hear about evils. And actually, as Catholics, we should have a deeper sense of the evil of sin. And so when someone attacking the church denounces something genuinely evil from church history, then we should denounce the evil even more strongly than them. It's a good strategy, for one thing. But also, it's what should be the case if we love good and hate evil. And the more we love the church, the more we hate the evil that hides her true face. The trouble is, when someone lets those emotions substitute for reason. And they make a simple transfer of their negative emotions about the evil that was done by Catholics, they transfer those emotions across to the Catholic faith. But that transfer has no rational basis. It's done simply by emotional association. So for our responses to be in line with truth and genuine morality, we have to be guided by reason, not blind emotion. Emotions guided by reason are good, but without this guidance, uh, negative emotions can irrationally overflow from sinful actions, contrary to Catholic teachings, overflow to those teachings themselves. Reason, logic, it obviously follows certain laws. I think it's worthwhile looking at this in a bit of detail. We can analyse whether someone's thinking follows those laws or not. So I'll give one example of the, the logical form called the syllogism. So two statements, the premises, leading to a third statement, the conclusion. Christ promised that the leaders in the church would never commit great sins. Now, as we'll see, there was no such promise. But taking that as a premise. Second, but leaders in the church have committed great sins. Therefore, what Christ promised was false. Now, that's valid logical form. If the two premises are both true, then the conclusion would logically follow. But obviously, premise one is false. Christ never even hinted at such a promise. And that's why the conclusion isn't true either. And actually, as we saw, he, he indicated the opposite, that some church leaders would be unworthy. And so the existence of sin in the church doesn't invalidate his promises, even slightly. But now, but now an example of two true premises, but where there's no actual logical connection to the conclusion someone might draw. So a total lack of logical form. It's a transfer simply by association. So the first premise, some bad popes did evil things against Catholic teachings, which is true. Those bad popes were the leaders of the Catholic Church, also true. From which some people simply move to the conclusion, therefore the Catholic Church and her teachings are evil. So premises one and two are both true, but the supposed logical conclusion actually has no logical connection at all by the laws of logic with the two premises. Search as you will, you will not find a valid logical link. It's a complete leap of logic. And so it doesn't help anyone get in touch with the truth even a little bit. Well, I think this is the sort of thing that often goes on in people's minds. And often enough, there would be some irrational transfer, transfer of emotions coming in here. 
the negative emotions we'd rightly have in connection with the, the evil actions of, of some Pope irrationally being transferred across to the divine aspects of the church coming from Christ. An important point here is that sin in the end is always the choice of individuals, specific individuals. Even if for convenience we might say the church did such and such. Collective guilt is a very confused concept. And so the International Theological Commission in its document emphasised that subjective responsibility for a sin lies only with the person who knowingly commits the sin. Often what happens is that switch between the different layers of meaning in the word church. So in logic, if you change the meaning of a word midstream, it invalidates the logic. And so we can use the word church as a sort of sociological shorthand, meaning what lots of church leaders or church members are in fact doing. And so someone might say, during the Renaissance, the church was mainly interested in wealth and power. Meaning a lot of popes and bishops were mainly interested in wealth and power. Or we can use the word church in a more theological way. Meaning, for example, those aspects of the church coming from Christ and bringing us his grace and truth. And so using that meaning, we might say, for example, the church teaches that Christ is really present in the Eucharist. Now, if we're not alert to the different shades of meaning of this word church, again, we can incorrectly transfer the meanings. And so someone at the Renaissance might have said, why should I care what the church teaches? The church is only interested in wealth and power. So the word church being used in, in two different ways. So they've criticised the, the aspects of the church coming from Christ on the basis of the things contrary to church teachings that some popes and bishops were doing. So logically, arguments like that, they have zero impact on whether the Catholic faith is true. And that means that evils in the church that actually go contrary to Christ's teachings, they don't even weigh one little bit against Christ himself or against his teachings and his grace that come to us in the church. And so it's important we don't give evil the, the false victory of imagining that it somehow at least diminishes the goodness of good things with which the evil might have become associated. Now, evil damages or destroys the good directly opposed to it. And so, a sin damages or destroys the, the moral goodness of the person committing the sin. But let's suppose, for example, this great sinner is also a great musician. Their sin doesn't damage the goodness of music, as though music itself is now somehow tainted. In the same way, the good coming forth from God's hand remains the good. All the good things in the church remain what they were to the glory of God. Pope John Paul gave a great image. When sunlight, when sunlight shines through a stained glass window, it produces beautiful colours within. But if the window has a lot of dirt on it, that affects how well those within can see the sunlight and the stained glass. But the sunlight itself is totally untarnished. And underneath the dirt, the stained glass still has the same beauty. We just need to clean the dirt, the dirt away. 
So the sunlight and the stained glass, the truth and grace coming from Christ, shining through his holy Catholic Church. And it doesn't astound us when even good things that God has established, whether in creating the world or redeeming it, when his good things get twisted to evil. Because actually, when you reflect on it, this is the way evil always works. To take something good, even something holy, and to distort it. And St Thomas Aquinas explains that evil can't exist all by itself. It's always parasitic on the good. So, for example, that Christ established only one church with the fullness of the means of salvation. Well, that's a good thing. That's part of his plan to reunite the human race in one family of faith. And yet, that very uniqueness of the church, it can get twisted into intolerance, even persecution of those outside. This sort of thing happens when one truth loses the balance provided by another truth. So in this case, the, the truth that was in the shadows in some periods of history was the truth of the dignity of the human person that would have uh, prevented the, the persecutions and that got lost. And so it is that sometimes cultures of sin arise in the church because one aspect of the truth might go into the shade. But again, never so as to contradict the truth of church teachings or the grace of the sacraments. Now, apart from the teaching, the teachings and the sacraments, which we can always trust, there is a, an intermediate level where a church authority might order something wrong to take place. And so the authority structures get twisted to bad ends. And then it might seem that the church as such is then involved in the evil, not just the individual giving the command. But really, that still doesn't discredit the divine aspects of the church that we're concerned about. Because if any human authority, including a church leader, gives a sinful command against God's law, well, scripture and theology tell us we may not obey that order. We must obey God rather than men, we read in the Acts of the Apostles. And so the principle of church authority, authorised by Christ, that still remains intact. Just not that particular wrong command, not authorised by Christ. And just like... The principle of the authority of the state remains intact, even if a government makes unjust laws in this or that instance. So just summarising all the different points. First, our faith is always in Christ's promises, summed up in those words to Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that also implies that the gates of hell will be trying very hard to prevail until the end of time. Second, the Holy Church has divine and human aspects. And it's the, the divine aspects, the, the truth of her teachings and the grace of the sacraments that never fail in holiness. But we, her members, have free will, and so sin enters. Third, when assessing the evils in church history, we need to make an accurate historical judgment, rejecting legends, keeping perspective of all the good things the church has brought, and of the evils outside the church, 
when judging people's actions, keeping in mind the knowledge and conditions of that time and culture, God's gradual formation of his people and the world. And sin in the church is actually a fulfilment of Christ's prophecies, the weeds and the wheat, the unfaithful stewards. Number five, the sacraments aren't magic. And so baptism, ordination, the Eucharist, they don't force anyone to be holy. Number six, if our faith depends on the goodness of the clergy, that's clericalism. Number seven, being guided by reason and the laws of logic, not blind emotion and association. Number eight, there is no such thing as collective guilt. Sin is always the responsibility of individuals. Number nine, the good remains the good, which evil can't take away, like the sunlight shining through the stained glass. Number ten, evil is always a twisting of something good coming from God. And so it doesn't surprise us that any good thing in this world can be twisted, even in the church. So finally, the true holiness of the church shines forth in the saints. The Australian Catholic writer, theologian Frank Sheed made, made the point that we don't judge a medicine by those who buy it but never use it, but by those who actually take it. And so the power of the church to produce holiness has to be judged by looking at those who actually believe and obey her teachings, who pray and who make prayerful use of her sacraments not by looking at the members of the church through history who have neglected these things. And then we see how the holiness of the church's sacraments and teachings doesn't just remain invisible. It shines forth in the lives of all the holy people who radiate Christ. So, the church and the faults of the past. In the end, it's exactly what Christ predicted. A mix of weeds and wheat. But when we look at the lives of those who fully devote themselves to following the way of life set forth by the church's faith, then we receive a vision not just of the, the universality of sin, but of the universality of grace, which is far more powerful and abundant, and through which Christ will keep bringing forth saints in his church until the end of the world. Thank you. Thank you so much.